uh, open your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to do a little bit of skipping in Ecclesiastes. I don't normally do that, uh, but, but uh, 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 what you have in the rest of chapter 2, we've, we've, not that we've already covered it, but there are some similar themes of vanity. And I want to move to chapter 3, so if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I have no doubt uh, you will either be familiar with this passage, at least the first few verses, and if you're extra spiritual, you're going to sing a uh, secular pop song as we read this passage. So uh, we'll, we'll see which category you, you are in. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we want to begin in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time of peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen that business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Now, Father, we ask, as always, You would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet, our mouths, that we would take Your Word, apply it to, to our lives, be transformed by it, be transfixed on Your glory, and be, be ambassadors of our community. Uh, may we be different because we open Your Word and encounter Your Son. May I decrease so that You can increase. In the name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. Seated. I'm guessing at some point, maybe when you were in Sunday school as a kid, there was a deep philosophical thought that just bothered you. Maybe you were talking about the story of creation or something like that. And, and, and if it wasn't when you were a kid, maybe when you were in college taking that uh, pagan philosophy class. And, and the thought was simply, who created God? You ever, ask, ever wondered that question? Uh, and and uh, it can be quite a difficult the question, particularly at least on the surface, sometimes it is articulated is who designed the designer, right? I was watching a debate between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, if you care anything about those names. And this was an argument that uh, Dawkins, the atheist, made that if you're going to make an argument from design, then you have to explain where did the designer come from? If everything has a beginning, then you have to explain uh, the beginning of the one who, who calls the beginning. Of course, this is utter nonsense. The question itself is, is rather ridiculous, and it, it reflects the philosophical infancy of most Americans. Um, uh, many critics of theism thought that such a question proves unanswerable, uh, but the question itself is quite vain. It is like asking uh, to imagine a married bachelor. The question is foolish, quite frankly. Think about it. It presumes the divinity of time. 
It presumes that God himself is a created being. And if God is a created being, there must be something outside of God himself, and that being must be time itself. And so now what you have is a being that is subject to time. And in the debate, Lennox reminds Dawkins, he says, when you talk about God being an illusion, we should probably uh, be clear what we mean by the word God. Because what it is you are describing here isn't the God of Scripture. But since God is infinite and eternal, God, we believe, is the creator of time itself. Now, if, if you allow yourself and, and think about what does it mean that God is outside of time and the creator of time, you will find yourself under the bed, sucking your thumb in the fetal position, reciting the Greek alphabet backwards, right? So, so, so try not to overdo it, but it is true. After all, the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Which means before there was a beginning, there was an eternal, infinite God. In fact, you'll see at the end here that the critic says that which will be already has been. That which was already has been. God is outside of time. Now, the reason that is important is because if God is eternal and infinite, then we need to see, particularly from this passage, that God is sovereign over the entire cosmos. And because he is sovereign over the entire cosmos, he is sovereign over our lives lives and over time itself. That is to say, there is nothing beyond God's authority or control. Now, given the content and the message of the book of Ecclesiastes thus far, the critic rightly turns our attention to this fundamental and eternal truth. Our pursuit of meaning in this life is ultimately meaningless apart from our place in the universe under the sovereign care and authority of God. Notice that in, in this passage, we begin with the poem in verses 1 to 8. And in order to understand this poem, we, we have to remember the context in which it is written. Typically, when you hear this poem, it is in a funeral, and I've used it in a funeral before, and, and is used, but it's never really dealt with. The, the preacher reads it so he can say, there is a time to die. That is the whole point of him reading this poem. He skips everything else in it. He just wants you to know there is a time to die. Now, let that message be a blessing unto you, right? But of course, there's more going on here. In chapter one, the critic bemoans the endless cycle of life. The sun rises, the sun sets. We come and we go. One generation rises, another falls. One kingdom comes and another goes. Life is but an endless cycle. Death is its end. There is no escape. Let those words be a blessing unto thee, right? Then we turn to chapter two, and what we see the critic trapped into this endless cycle of life, he, 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 he tries to find meaning by human effort. Okay, if, 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 if I'm going to die, that, that, that the book of Ecclesiastes faces the reality of death and says, okay, being that that is true, what now? How, how do we understand life and meaning and purpose? He says, okay, if, if life is an endless cycle and I can't break out of this life, can I at least find meaning in this life? And so as we spent significant time on, he, he, he tries to, to find uh, uh, such value and purpose. But what he concludes is that it is all vanity and sorrow. Try drink, try pleasure, wealth or women. It all ends the same. Emptiness because of death. 
This is life, he says, under the sun. And that is the phrase he uses over and over again, that that which is under the sun proves fleeting. But then something changes in chapter 3. Notice verse 1. For everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. It's in the King James. And a time for every matter under the sun. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I misread that, didn't I? There is, uh, a, there is a time for every, every matter, what? Under heaven. When you see the change in the lingo, the, 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 read, the writer is trying to tell us something. And this should immediately stick out to us. Although not directly mentioned, the language strongly implies the sovereign care of God. If all we're left in is a materialist world governed by the sun, then vanity will be our lot. Because I, I don't want to ruin your dinner today. But if, if all we are is stardust and the sun governs our lives, the sun could not care less about you. Nor does nature. Nor does anything else in this world. If all we are is stardust, you are insignificant and no one cares. I trust those words will bless you this evening. But if the world is governed by a loving, sovereign father, then that changes everything. Everything there is a season. And in that single phrase there in verse 1, we have a summary, verses 2 to 8. There is a season for everything. And as Paul shows us in 2 Timothy, which we'll be looking at soon in our devotions, not this week, but next week we'll start 2 Timothy. He reminds us that, that, that whether you're in season and out of season, can I give you some good theological insight on, on that phrase? You are either in season or you are out of season. Now, you can't be both seasons. You're either in season or out of season. It is either deer season or it's not. It's either muzzleloader season or it's not. It's either English Premier League season or not, right? It is either basketball season or, or, or not, right? My father-in-law today, he was over the house. My wife and, and father-in-law are visiting my, my mother-in-law's in the hospital. And uh, he says, you know, I don't like this COVID stuff because I like college basketball. <laughs> it's like... It's like yeah, I, I know. You're, you're from Kentucky. Right? I get that. It ruined March. Took a lot of lives, too. But it ruined March, you know? You're either in season or out of season. But under God's sovereign care, He has appointed every aspect of our lives. In fact, we, we need to grasp two things from this poem in verses 3 to 8. The first thing we need to grasp is that we need to believe that God is sovereign over everything. Now, now we need to pause here and, and realize that when we read that, we read it as Americans. Let's be honest. You don't like that language. It sounds really spiritual and biblical, so you accept it, but you don't really believe it, do you? Because we Americans don't believe in sovereigns. We don't believe in kings. Because something happened in, in the uh, mid to late 18th century called the American Revolution. You should Google it. And what happened was we revolted against a sovereign, against the king, because we don't like the idea of a king. 
And then here comes Christianity saying, oh, by the way, God is sovereign over everything. God is king. God is Lord. God is monarch over everything. So let me just prove it to you from the Bible. Let's speak of general sovereignty here just, just real quick. And by quick, I mean I'm going to read you a bunch of Bible verses. So, so if you have a problem with what I say, deal it up with, with the sovereign himself. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Guess who is under all? You, me, and the next guy who wins the election in 2020 or 2024 or 2028 or, <laughs> yeah, avoid jokes there. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants to do. That's also King James. God does whatever he wants to. Hey, your parents ever had to say this to your kids? Dad, Mom, why, I, 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 why, why are we uh, like, oh, here's an idea. Because I'm in charge of this house. Did it ever cross your mind? Like, you ain't the boss of me, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to do whatever it is I want to do. Now, if I'm a person of character, that's kind of limited what it is I want to do. But I don't need your opinion or your, your democratic insight. This ain't no democracy, son or daughter, right? Ever, ever have this conversation with your kids? If not, you because you don't have kids. Or what about Daniel 4? All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? There is no democracy with God. None. See, uh, right now, if you don't like something the governor's doing, you can write a strongly worded email if you want. You're probably not going to read it, but you can do that. You know, you could do that. You can write a letter to the editor if you want to. No one reads them anymore. But you can do that if you want to. You can't do that with God. We try, don't we? Dear God, in our prayers, I don't like this. Fix it. Signed me. You can't do that. You can't do that. What about Job 42? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, what's the context of that? In Job 42, remember, for chapters, Job's been saying, look, these friends of mine are a bunch of losers. I should have left them back in the college days. But, but here's, here's the issue is, God, I'm not happy. I've been suffering. Things aren't going the way I want them to. You're going to stand on trial, and I'm the judge. And God shows up and says, oh, I'm sorry, little Job, Job, is that your name? Um, um, explain to me, where were you when I told the oceans to go this far and no farther? That's right. I hadn't created you yet. Where were you when I told Orion and placed the belt there and all the other galaxies? Where were you when I did that? Oh, that's right. You were still uh, uh, not around, right? And so in that context, Job realizes hey, God could do whatever it is he, he wants and no one can throw it his will. Why? Because he's sort of in control. What about specific sovereignty? Maybe we can accept, okay, God is the big man on stage, but what about specific sovereignty where God gets really involved in the affairs of the world in our very lives? Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's right. You go play those lottery tickets. When you lose, God is laughing at you, right? That's basically what that means, right? I'm a Kentucky Baptist. Don't do the laundry. Laundry. If you're a Kentucky fan, don't do the laundry because we're tired of seeing your blue shirts. Uh, chapter 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Remember that come election time. God is in control even of the king. Uh, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Remember that next time you, you go fill out that 2021 planner. How many of you all did that for 2020? <laughs> God is laughing at you, right? 
That doesn't mean you shouldn't make plans. But at the end of the day, God's going to do whatever God wants to do. In James chapter 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go such and such a town and spend a year there and make trade and profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, he ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Sure, I'd love to go to that town and make some, some extra money. But if God don't want us to do it, it ain't going to happen. No matter how good of a businessman or how, how well you thought this out. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Sounds like Ecclesiastes 3, doesn't it? What about Genesis 20? Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. What do you do with a text like that? You see, the critic reminds the reader that what is missing in this entire book so far is a correct perspective of God. The Lord is sovereign over all the universe, and he does what he pleases. You see, the Lord is, is, is sovereign over the seasons, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up. He is sovereign over all of that. This is why Charles Spurgeon can say, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of, of, of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the shaft from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of sear leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God is sovereign, and thus he appoints for us seasons and time. You see, if, if, if the first is true, that we must believe that God is sovereign, the second must be true, and that is we ain't sovereign. And we are sovereign over nothing. And this is the part that we do not like, and that's the problem. The frustration of the critic here is he cannot control anything. You see, in the book so far, the frustration has been I am stuck in this endless cycle. And it doesn't matter what it is I try to control, my wealth, my pleasure, my work, my schedule, my family, my career, my this or that. What I discover is I'm not the one in control because what I cannot create is something only God can give. And that's the frustrating part of being human. Every generation rises and discovers the same thing and still doesn't learn the lesson for the next generation. So he deserves a no effort on our part will make this fleeting existence meaningful because there is nothing under the sun worth trying. And thus this mighty king of Israel, Solomon, confesses that God is sovereign and though he is not. You see, it is the height of arrogance to suggest that God shares his sovereignty with myriads. He is sovereign and we are not. Isn't this the critic's realization in this pop song? This poem demonstrates that God's sovereign care is 
whole. And this is why you'll notice here there are 14 pairs. So there's 28, a time for a time for 28, broken down into 14 pairs. Now, if my public school math from Wayne County is correct, uh, uh, 14 and 28 are divisive by sevens, right? Am I getting that right? Uh, some of you who, who, who are homeschooled or private school, you'll you have to let me know after the service, but I'm pretty sure I Googled it and it came out right. So, so, so it's not an accident then that when he's going through this poem and he speaks of God's sovereign care, that he appoints seasons in time, it's not an accident. He takes the number seven and he makes it whole. He uses the division of, of seven. And notice how each of, the, of these pairs demonstrate the whole. Here at the, here at the beginning of verse 2, there's a time to be born and a time to die. This describes the entire scope of life. You are not sovereign over an ounce of it. Tell me, when and why did you choose to be born when, when you were born? Anyone want to tell me? Share with me real quick. Why did you choose to be born to the parents you were born to at the time in which you were, you, you were born? Tell me, tell me why you did that. Well, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That's what Jesus tells us. In, uh, or, or, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, Jesus says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Or in Psalm 139, 16, you, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God had appointed the time of our birth. Job 14, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits. He cannot pass. Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Notice what, what uh, the psalmist confesses there. He said, if, if I do not choose the day of my birth or the day of my death, this is a holistic way of describing our, the entire scope of life. What I discover is that God is sovereign over every single day that I breathe. That's a humbling reality, isn't it? Because chances are you're, you're sort of like me right now. You're trying to cut out the sugar, aren't you? So you can extend your days. Now, let me just say, you should cut out sugar in your life, okay? But at the end of the day, it is God who is sovereign over your very existence. There is a time to plant and a time to pluck. This is the entire scope of the seasons, a time to kill, a time to heal. This is the entire scope of husbandry. Every shepherd knows there's a time to celebrate the birth of a lamb and to mourn the necessary end of another, even at times on the same day. One of the things that I've experienced in 17 years of ministry is that there are some days where you experience the, the joys of birth in your church and the tragedy of death in your church within the same day. I'll never forget the day that, that I mourned with the family who had lost their, their own child and the difficulties of that moment and the decisions they were making they, they had never thought they'd have to make. But here they were with a little child having to, to face reality. He is gone forever. And then I return home just exhausted emotionally and there is, is a little infant needing my attention. There is, a, there is a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. This is the entire scope of labor, something he spent a significant time in chapter 2 talking about. Man is always building something, and this requires destruction and construction, doesn't it? If, if you want to build, if, so if this city wants to expand, I don't know, we need another state building or something. Guess what's got to happen? We've got to tear something down and replace it with something else. 
There's a time to break down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. This is the entire scope of human emotions. Again, maybe within the same day, you, you can experience the, the high of human emotions of joy and, and, and excellence. And then within a matter of minutes, experience the, 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 the lowest of sorrows and tears. And notice here, God is sovereign over all of it. God appoints a time for each of these. A time for us to tear, a time for us to sow, a time for us to be silent, a time for us to speak. And it is God who, is, who appoints all of them. Also notice how each pair includes a generic good and a generic bad. Consider the birth, the good, birth, planting, healing, building up, laughing, dancing, gathering stones, embracing, seeking, sowing, speaking, and peace. Those are good things. I am, I am pro-peace. Do we have to say that anymore? I don't, I don't know. Um, hashtag pro-peace. Then there's the generic bad stuff like death, plucking, killing, breaking down, weeping, mourning, casting stones, refraining from embracing, losing, casting away, tearing, silence, hating, and war. These are all bad. The myth of the modern mind is that we can control both with the right system in place, with the right policies laid out, with, with the right technology created, with the right pill, I can avoid the bad and control the good. And although we, we have a tendency as modern Americans to believe that, we know it's false. So take the pill, for example. Let's say you have watery, itchy eyes. You go to the doctor with your watery, itchy eyes. You say, Doc, I got watery, itchy eyes. What is he going to do? You say, all right, here's a pill for your watery, itchy eyes. And, and what are you going to discover? You, you go to the pharmacy, you get your pills for your watery, itchy eyes, and then you start reading the fine print of your watery, itchy eyes pills. And what do you discover? It might kill you. And, and all of us have done this. Okay, I have this physical problem that I need to address. And the doctor says, this medicine will help me. But I'd rather have watery, itchy eyes than this entire list of stuff. So we believe that, that with, with the right tweak, with the right fix, we can enjoy the good and avoid the bad. And what do we discover? You can't do it. You can't do it. Because are you willing to trade uh, 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 getting rid of water itchy eyes for one of these other things? Are you willing to trade social connection with the loss of privacy? Are you willing to trade social action and the loss of civility? Are we willing to trade this for that? For every good thing we get, there's going to be plenty of bad things to come with it. Why? Because we will never create utopia because we're not sovereign to begin with. God is sovereign. And he appoints the seasons of our lives. You say, you can't control these things. But God can. And under God's sovereign care are both the good and the bad. And that's the part we really struggle with. When we think of God's sovereign care, we only want the good. So we want to thank the Lord, right, for, for rain that, that grows the flowers in our garden. For the good things, the birth of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We, we, we want the beginning of school to get rid of the kids. We want, we want all these good things that God gives us. But all of a sudden, we want a weak God when it comes to the bad stuff. But what if God, under his sovereign care, is in control of it all? Is there not more, more comfort and grace knowing I don't need to understand everything beyond the reality that God is sovereign, even things I can't control and understand? Isn't this what Job learns? 
In Job chapter 1, he says, The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Shall we receive, he says in chapter 2, good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. By the way, you want to know, I believe this is correct. You can check it for me in your Hebrew Bible. I believe the words good and evil. Does that sound familiar, you Bible people? Genesis 3. God is sovereign even over the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that, that, those two words show up all over the Bible on purpose to take us back to that fundamental story. And until we concur with the critic here that God is sovereign and I am not, we will surrender to the anxious bitterness of who we really are. If it is joy that you are looking for, the God of time gives it. If it's peace you desire, the sovereign Lord gives it. If it's meaning you want, the providential king promises it. Otherwise, we search in vain under the sun. Well, we, we've got to move quickly. Let's, we go from the poem to the practice. We, we, we'll, we'll just go through this real quick. Three things we, we, we need to, to note here. The first is God is sovereign. If you haven't gotten the point, then welcome back to church, right? <laughs> we've been here for almost an hour. Um, God is sovereign. So although, again, he's never named, God weighs heavily on the text. And the seasons were created by God and cannot be manipulated by man. That's a, that's a, it's, it's a good fact, right? You, you know when spring's coming. It's a frustrating fact. You know when spring's coming, right? If you're a farmer, right, you know you got to have it all ready. And, and that means winter's a busy time. So you get ready for, for spring. And we get this. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 10, 5, he who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps and harvests is a son who brings shade. Right? You got to know the season. Same thing, Proverbs 20. The sluggard, I love that word. We need to bring that word back. Does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. You got to know the seasons and know the Lord has appointed the seasons. Thus, instead of bemoaning your life, we need to learn to trust God and his sovereign care in our life. And given our fear of tyranny, American evangelicals really struggle with this reality. But the Lord is the God of the universe and he is our divine father. When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we do not do so apart from the fatherhood of God. The attributes are not in a slice like, like, like a pizza pie. Rather, they are connected. The God who is sovereign is the God who is love. And the God who is father is the God who is jealous. So when we wrestle with doubts and fears and uncertainty, is it not encouraging to know that God has called you and me to this very moment in history, to these challenges, to these seasons? We had better fulfill the job that God has called us to fulfill. So it isn't just we need to discover the sovereignty of God. We need to discover the immunity of God. God is immutable. What that means is God does not change. Uh, if, if you've been here as long as we've been here, you, you know that this is the one uh, doctrine of God I, I think we, we don't talk enough about. It's actually why I'm a John Knox fan um, for you history buffs and Reformation buffs. Let me just briefly show you in the Bible. Uh, Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Pretty clear, isn't it? God don't change his mind. Uh, same thing in Malachi, uh, for I, the Lord, do not change. I don't know how you can get around that clear language. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, God doesn't change. And let me tell you, I'm a person, I've, I've said, I told this to you before, I don't like domestic change. Right? I'm okay if we just change everything in the church. Let's just try and see what happens and see how long I can last. But at home, I don't like change. At home, my wife loves change. 
this entertainment center has moved here and it functions well here and everyone seems happy about it here. So let's move it over here. I don't get that. I like knowing where my stuff is. And in my wife, when she, she, she moves everything, and I'll say, did you bother my stuff? Don't worry. I kept everything together, and I know immediately I'll never find my stuff. <laughs> Something happens. The elves come out. They, they smell that, right? The missus has moved the, 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 the husband's stuff, and, and they go and they, they mess with it all. Well, the good news is that God does not change. And yet what is striking is all around us is change. If you haven't noticed this, it's 2020. We're here right now on a Sunday evening wearing masks. And there will be people here that won't come here tonight because they don't want to wear masks or because they don't want to get outside. We weren't having this conversation a year ago. Everything around us is changing. I was in a seminary class and there was a wise pastor teaching it. And, and he, he gave us some really good wisdom. I've always kept him back in my mind. And I'm almost embarrassed to share this with you because I'm afraid you may use it against me. And, and it was that, that one of the students was being frustrated that he was instituting small changes and the resistance was great. That would never happen at a Baptist church. And, and, and the, the, the professor says, look, something you need to understand here. I had the same problem. An elderly man came up to me. He said, son, you need to understand our entire life has been one of change. The world that we live in now was unfathomable of the world I grew up as a child. Look, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. Let me tell you, the world I grew up then is nothing like the world I grew up now. I mentioned hopping on hay bales this morning. You think any kid's doing that in Frankfurt today? That was normal. I remember mom and dad thought we were remote controls for the TV. But everything continues. Not just that it has changed and so we found a new normal. It continues to change. And the elderly man went up to his pastor. He says, you need to understand, the church was always that one place where everything seemed normal. And it seemed like I could handle the change out there if everything was normal in here. Well, I'm sympathetic to that. Aren't you? Aren't you sympathetic to that to a certain extent? doesn't mean that we should be dogmatic on, on things that don't, don't really matter or whatnot or shouldn't change. But, but I think we understand the, the, and sympathize with that. Everything around us is changing. What do we see here? No, the world may change. The mountains may, may crumble. But God does not change. And from the immutability of God comes the assurance of God's security. If God's character and covenants are irrevocable, then what is it? What should I fear? Times of suffering, times of sorrow, times of pandemic are a reminder of our need of a rock of ages that stands strong. While the rest of the world turns to violence and certainty, let us choose peace from the God of peace. The seasons of life may change, but the hope we have in Christ do not. After all, he says there, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Isn't that good news? Because guess what? It's, it's, it, the seasons will change tomorrow. And they'll change the day after that. And they'll probably change while you're asleep tonight. But all that God wishes endures forever. Can I give you a third thing? then we can get in our cars and take off our masks. And that is God is good. Notice his conclusion there in 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now if that sounds familiar, it's not the first time he has said this. Although we skipped it, we, we see it in chapter 2, verse 24. 
He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, now it is easy to misread him because it sounds contradictory. Go back to chapter 2, verse 22. He says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Now, in verse 24, we read, enjoy that which you toil. Which is it? Or you can look at chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, uh, uh, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And the implication is, it ain't good. So which is it? Should you enjoy the toil of your hands? Or when you go to enjoy the toil of your hands, it is vanity. Here's a deep theological answer. You may want to write it in the back of your Bibles. This is good stuff. The answer to that question is yes. It's yes. You should enjoy the work of your hands. Oh, by the way, it is vanity. Both are true, but they're both true depending on how one views the world. See, prior to, 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 to uh, confronting God's sovereign care in this poem and in, in the prose that, that follows, what it is is there's a temptation to buy into the nihilistic proverb, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's easy to turn Ecclesiastes into that, but that's not what he says, is it? He says, look, if it is God's gift to man, it is God's gift for our good and thus should be enjoyed with the understanding this world is passing away, but it is a small taste of what awaits us. Remember that next time you bite into a fresh garden tomato. You remember that next time you hold a newborn baby. You remember that next time you celebrate another milestone of your marriage. These simple pleasures and joy. If I make gods out of them, we're proved to be vanity. But if I see God's goodness in them, I get but a taste, but a taste of what awaits us. Isn't that the Lewis quote I've used a million times and you're probably tired of? Many of us are content with mud pies in the alleys when God offers us a vacation at the sea. Why settle for this when God offers us far more. So instead of the nihilistic proverb, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, let us believe the gospel proverb that says, let us eat, let us drink, and let us be merry, dear Christian, because yesterday we were dead. Don't you remember your baptism? And although temporary blessings do not satisfy, they do direct us to one who does. You see, God's creation is good and is meant to be enjoyed. Isn't that what he said there in verse 11? God has made everything beautiful in its time. You remember, there is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck. A time to heal and a time to kill. A time to construct and a time to destroy. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Well, thanks to COVID, I got ahead in my reading this year. For about two months, all I did was hang out here at the church and go home and read. And uh, I did more than that. Now I'm, I'm sound like a bad father. Um, but but I, I was able to, to do some reading and uh, uh, one of the best books I've read this year, it'll probably go down as my favorite book of the year, 
was David McCullough's biography of John Adams. My wife and I started watching the HBO series uh, of John Adams. And as typical, if I ever watch uh, like a true story, I have to go read the full story. You know, it, it, it's, it's a curse. And uh, we got two episodes in this. I got to read the whole thing. And it is an excellent book. If you're looking for a good biography, uh, I really recommend uh, David McCullough's biography of John Adams. But near the end, uh, he, he, he explores Adams in retirement. And Adams was one of the oldest presidents to, to ever have lived. In fact, he and Thomas Jefferson, this is free, died nearly at the same time within hours of each other on the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July. It's incredible. Really is, is incredible. Adams was the first president who had a son or a grandson to become president, John Quincy Adams. It's only happened three times. W and HW were the more recent. You don't care about that. That's not why I'm mentioning John Adams. But in his biography, McCullough looks back at the end of Adams' life and through the voice of Adams and the pen of Adams, he, Adams regrets a few things in his life. McCullough writes, feelings of dejection and bitterness would come and go for a long time for Adams. Nearly six months after he returned to Quincy, his, his home. In a letter, Adams would allow that if he had to do it all over again, he would have preferred to be a shoemaker. His own father, the man he admired above all, had been a shoemaker. Long before, in his rounds of Boston as a young lawyer, Adams would, would represent the uh, Boston Massacre soldiers from Britain. Adams often heard a man with a fine voice singing behind the door of an obscure house. One day, curious to know who this cheerful mortal might be, he had knocked at the door to find a poor shoemaker with a large family living in a single room. Did he find it hard getting by? Adams had asked the man. Sometimes, he replied. But Adam ordered a pair of shoes. Quote, I had scarcely got out of the door before he began to sing again like a nightingale. Adams remembered, quote, which was the greater philosopher, he concludes, Epictetus or the shoemaker? He would often ask when retelling the story. I love that from, the, from our second president. He learned more about the beauty of the world. Not when he's signing the Treaty of Paris at the end of the Revolutionary War. Not when he moves from being vice president under George Washington to the second president of the United States. Not when he is leading Jefferson to write the Declaration of Independence. He learned more about the beauty of the world from a shoemaker who sank because he was happy. There is a time, and God is sovereign over it. And that is good news. That's us